0: well tonight we 're going to begin our study in ezekiel chapter thirty seven and uh, I, I do have to tell you right off the bat that we're not going to finish uh, ezekiel thirty seven tonight we're going to do the most important part of ezekiel thirty seven i well it's the, the whole is important but uh, it is that part that deals with the valley of dry bones and of course the resurrection of the nation of Israel, and see very clearly from the Word of God as well as from uh, what we see in history as well as in current times and in current events, that uh, indeed God's Word is not telling us that whatever is being resurrected in this chapter is something like the church because by the way the church doesn't have to be resurrected uh... jesus has already resurrected on our behalf so we have to take very clearly and uh, very literally god's word when it comes to this particular chapter and certainly all of bible prophecy uh... we have to face the truth that all of bible prophecy is focused upon uh, the people and the nation of Israel there is an Israel today, in fact, our own president was there this past weekend, and uh, I have a lot to say about that on sunday and I have to say I have to tell you it's it 's sunday i 'm going to be talking about uh, i won't won 't be on Saturday night, but I will be on sunday and we 're going to talk about uh, things that pertain to uh, current events that are that are actually happening before. Our very eyes, uh, and and see how Scripture is aligning these things in preparation for the return of Jesus for His church, and then, of course, for uh, Him dealing with the nation of Israel and bringing them to where we are aiming in the Book of Ezekiel and these last uh, twelve chapters or so. Well, hopelessness seemed to be the emotional attitude of the Jewish survivors in captivity in Babylon throughout much of their exile. Feelings of dejection, demoralization, despondency, and desperation ruled their days, if you could call them days, for they were covered in great darkness and bleakness. You might have felt that they'd never put aside this hopelessness, In hearing or reading the initial words of Psalm 137, you know, when you read those first couple of of verses in in Psalm 137, you you might wonder, would they ever move away from that hopelessness? By the rivers of Babylon, it says, There we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. dejected, despondent. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. That means the Babylonians said, oh, sing your songs. Sing your songs to your God. There they that carried us away captive required of us a song and that they wasted us required of us mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But even in seasons of dark hopelessness, there, there can be glimpses of light shining through, as in the remainder of the psalm. When you read in verse 5 and following If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof the roof of my mouth, if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem. And as we've been studying the book of Ezekiel, remember that Edom was one of their main enemies, one of the ones that really put a lot of uh, punishment and pain upon upon Israel. Remember, he says, O Lord, or they... As, as a people said, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. If you remember, Edom was saying, Come on, just, just tear it down. Because they wanted to get in there and they wanted to take their spoils. You know, let the Babylonians destroy it. And we'll go in and get whatever's left. O oh, daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. That's their cry to God. Oh, God, you know, punish Babylon for what they did to your people. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. The sad thing is that is not just uh, figurative speech. That was real reality. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. But then again, think about this. There were the prayers of the prophets, such as that of Habakkuk, who cried in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. But in this prophecy of Ezekiel, there are the words of the Lord himself, spoken in chapter 36, what we just came out of, that are meant to lift the people of Judah and Israel out of that hopelessness. Go back, if you will, just a page to Ezekiel 36, verse 33. And that whole last section of that chapter, thus saith the Lord God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. And then the heathen, in other words, the nations or the Gentiles, but really the nations that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock. As the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. And they shall know that I am the Lord. In effect, the Lord was saying here in that last passage, Ask, and and, and I will perform it, and you'll see my proven work right before your very eyes. Ask. And I'm going to do it. This prophecy assumes now that the nation of Israel was utterly destroyed. And a few times they were left for nothing. Think about that in the history of Israel. God was now to take a dead, lifeless people and nation. And make them alive again. Now compare that to things that we have, we have taught in, 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 for example, the book of Ephesians. And we're going to come to that passage later. But Paul talks about the fact that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you know, we were alive physically, moving, breathing, doing whatever it is that we do. But spiritually, we were just completely dead. There was no life in us spiritually. And that's what we see here in the nation, in a whole nation of people. Now, remember, there were still a remnant that were true believers. But for the most part, the nation as a whole was dead. So God was going to make them alive again because He had promised them. He had made a covenant, that unilateral covenant that He made with Abraham for His people forever. Therefore, if he destroys his people completely and totally and utterly, where none are left, then he has broken his promise and God can't do that. God won't do that. And God doesn't do that. And by the way, who but the Lord could make them alive again? So we read now in verses 1 through 3 of Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord. In other words, the Lord's taking him in a vision and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. Caused me to pass by them round about And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Now, the description is really for one reason. (laughs) It's to let you know that when there are dead bones and they're very dry, they're pretty dead. (laughs) There's not much life in those things, you know. It's not like that steak that you ate last night at some restaurant, you know, The bone that's sitting there, the T-bone, you know, it's got a little bit of meat left on it. And you look at it and say, well, I could either take it home to my dog or else I can gnaw on it uh, until later, you know. These had nothing to gnaw on. These were dead bones, man. I mean, they were empty and dry and probably cracking and whatever. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God. Thou knowest. i tell you what, Ezekiel knew how to answer the Lord. He said, You know, Lord. <laughs> and what he said was, Who else could know? I can't know. I don't know. But you know. That's always the best answer to give to the Lord. So what we're dealing with now is the resurrection of a dead nation. And we know that the Lord is really good at, at resurrection. He's really good at that very aspect of giving life to that which is dead. In fact, if we're sitting here today and we have received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, you have been born again. You who were dead are now alive. That's what God's doing. None of us can do that. So the dry bones in this vision pictured that hopelessness of death that I was referring to earlier. And the Lord was showing Ezekiel in an immense, he was showing him this immense graveyard that had once represented life, but now was filled with the remains of death. A war-torn valley filled with very dry bones of a nation's people. Israel has certainly been the target of the devil and now even the world for thousands of years. Ironically, much of what has happened to Israel has been to a certain degree self-inflicted due to their disobedience, due to their rebellion against the Lord, their rebellion against His commandments. We know that and they know that. Nevertheless, the Lord has promised one thing about His people and His nation. In Jeremiah 31, verse 35, Jeremiah says, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. Or which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Notice what he says about all those ordinances. Now, the ordinances would be the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything else that he's done and he's made. He said, if those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Aren't you glad this morning when you got up that the sun was shining? And even though the sun is going to be going down in just a little while, that when we go out after Bible study tonight, if, 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 if the uh, air cooperates, we can see maybe the moon and some stars, a couple of them. They're still there. And as long as they're still there, God's promise to Israel remains. See, this is one of those passages here that really speaks directly to those who say today that much of what is written in the prophets are already, is, is already uh, been fulfilled, and we're not really dealing with the nation of Israel anymore now. All the blessings that Israel was supposed to have is now given to the church. That's called replacement theology, and that's just a lie, folks. I'm not even going to be nice about it. It's a lie. Because God made a promise to Israel. God made a promise to Israel. And God keeps his promises. God doesn't, you know, God doesn't do this, right? You know, what I'm, you know, crossing your fingers and putting them behind, and say, well, I said this, but, hey! <laughs> no, that's not our God. Our God is faithful. We have a faithful God. And even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. So if those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven can be measured. You know, every day these scientists look into the skies with their big, huge telescopes. They might as well use microscopes. They're going to keep looking out there and they're going to keep looking and they're going to keep finding. Well, there's no end to this universe there's no end to space there's no end to things. we keep finding this and finding that and then you know they get they they find smaller and smaller areas and then they look into those smaller areas and then they realize wow there's another kind of universe out there it just never ends so if heaven can be measured the lord says and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath and people have tried search down as deep as they can in the oceans, or maybe try to, you remember when you were a kid, you were digging a hole in your backyard, and you said, you know, maybe if I can keep digging, I'll be in China, you know, you're never going to do that, (laughs) you're never going to get there, besides, you know, get a little bit too deep, and it's going to be a little hot, (laughs) there's a core, that nobody's been able to search out. So if heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they've done, saith the Lord. He <laughs> said so I did? I, you know, I just cast them off, but he hasn't done it. Why? Because heaven can't be measured, and the earth and the foundations of it cannot be searched out. Still, still the Jewish people have suffered greatly in their history. They were, in a sense, dead as a nation already because of the destruction of their city, Jerusalem, and the people were scattered or in captivity in Babylon. And although they were brought back to the land in the time of Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and existed through the time of Antiochus, Epiphanes, and later the Romans, it wouldn't be long after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that that they would once again be nearly destroyed and scattered, as in 70 AD, when once again the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. It's it's fascinating about the history that takes place after 70 AD. There was a group of people, by the way, there there were a million people A million Jews that were killed in 70 AD. There were over a million people that were taken into captivity by the Romans or they scattered. But there was a group of of about 960 people that made their way to a place called Masada. And there in Masada, which was a really a mountain uh, 1300 feet above the Dead Sea, which means that Masada was actually sea level because the Dead Sea is 1300 feet below sea level. So there's Masada right at the sea level, but it, it was just a, a, a kind of a plain, a, or I should say a, 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 a flat mountain. And Herod the Great, back in um, around the th- 32 to 37 uh, B.C., before Jesus' birth on the earth. He had, built this, uh, he had built this palace there, place to live, out in the middle of the desert. And a lot of people don't realize that he built that palace out there because he was, uh, he, he was afraid of Cleopatra, who hated him and wanted to kill him. I don't want to go into all that story, but you can read about it. In any event, many many years later, of course, it had become abandoned and all. And uh, these uh, these Jews ended up getting up to this mountain and actually started a civilization. You know, kind of kept the. They didn't know what was going to happen to the Jewish people, so they they went up there and they felt safer up there. Yet the Romans found out about them and they, of course, went and built siege walls against it. You know, go up and. And to take them, and we all know the story. If you know about Masada, that those Jews killed themselves up in, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, before the Romans would get them. And uh, we were, a matter of fact, in Masada just a few months ago. It was, uh, it's, it's always fascinating to see what what is taking place. Well, there's a synagogue there that they found, they excavated. Yagael Yadin, the the the. Uh, archaeologist there wrote a book about Masada it's a real, real popular book but uh, in any event he uh, he talks about finding the synagogue and, and what they were interested in finding more than anything else was that in the synagogue in every Jewish synagogue they 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 they, they dig a hole and they they plant a not, a, a, a metal box um, for whatever things that they would want to keep in there Certainly, it doesn't mean you know there wasn't anything that said they had to keep certain things, but uh, there would always be this box in a synagogue. Well, they finally excavated this uh, uh, synagogue and they dug for this box and they found it. And when they opened the box, they found a a portion of the scriptures. And what they found was Ezekiel 37, the prophecy of the dry bones. And it's just fascinating to think, you know, that 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 would be what they would read, that at some point, the nation of Israel would be alive again. Travel through time to the 20th century, and in 1948, the Lord God brought his people back home again. But not before six million Jews were slaughtered and murdered by Hitler in the Third Reich. You might imagine this enormous graveyard filled with the bones of six million dead bodies and ask, can they live? Can they live? May I say to you that indeed they can. Because a people that could have been completely wiped out were brought back to the land of Israel. And this is really the, the real name, this is the official name, Eretz Israel. Eretz Israel is the land of Israel. And I want you to remember this, that the Lord preserved and restored the Hebrew language after thousands of years. Never happened in any other culture or language. That one language would actually be set aside. Everybody that scattered, you know, they, they they kept, you know, their Hebrew scriptures. But, you know, they would adopt the the languages of the, the places that they were living in throughout Europe and Asia and wherever. But Hebrew became the language once again. And really, that had never happened. And yet, all of this is but a partial fulfillment of this chapter. That's just a partial fulfillment. The more complete fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 comes... And will come at the end of the seven-year tribulation period when the Lord sets up His kingdom here on earth. When Jesus and ten thousands of His saints will march into Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate and set up His kingdom on the throne of David. But at the very middle of the seven-year period, three and a half years into the seven-year period of tribulation, the Antichrist, as the scriptures teach us, the Antichrist will go into the Holy of Holies. Yes, there will be a temple. We have to understand that. There will be a temple that will be fulfilled. We don't see it right now. We see a lot of tension happening in the world today. One of the things that we're going to talk about this coming Sunday is, is, is having to do with these peace plans that they're, uh, that they're trying to affect between the Palestinians and the, and the Israelis and And certainly all the other nations that surround them. But the Antichrist will one day go in and demand to be worshipped as God in the temple. So there will be a temple. And the scriptures teach us prophetically that many will flee for their lives. During this time, many will flee for their lives to a place called Petra in Jordan. As two-thirds of the Jewish population will be wiped out by the Antichrist. And only one-third will make it through the whole seven years. Now, I touched upon that uh, recently as well. So, again, the question is, can this people live? Can this nation live? Well, that is the question that the Lord is asking Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? Now, from a human perspective... It is impossible for bones to resurrect themselves, right? But nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. Reminds, uh, Reminds us of Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 26, where it says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now aside from what some people sometimes say that, you know, the eye of the needle was some gate on the walls of of the city that was down low, and why would the camel want to go down on his knees and crawl through some little gate, you know, it doesn't make any sense so don't go that way. Just realize this. It is impossible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle (laughs) than for a rich man. Well, it's easier for a camel, in other words. You see the impossibility that the Lord is setting up in this statement. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible for one who trusts in his own riches. enter into the kingdom of God. So when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? that's the question. You know, can these bones live? Because if they can't live, they can't be saved. Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With this, I'm sorry, with men, this is impossible. With men. With our thinking, with our way of doing things, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Now I have to ask you this question. Do you believe that? I mean, here again, this is one of those areas in life, you know, as we're studying the scriptures, that that we we can take a theoretical position, but it's not about theoretical, you know, I I theoretically believe in the Lord. Shut up, man. I mean, you either believe in him or you don't. You know, that's the bottom line. So it's, it's not like, you know, well, like... No, no. Do you believe that with God all things are possible? Yeah, I do. That's why I believe in the rapture of the church. And not only because it's in the word of God, but because it requires God to be powerful enough to do that. Now, it is also God's desire to do this for Israel. It is God's desire. I want you to understand what, what Paul means when he says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 6, speaking of Jesus, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in, to, in due time, it is God's will, it is God's desire to save men. So if it is God's desire to save men, it is truly God's desire to save his people. And to coincide with what we read and studied back in chapter 36, and I read a portion of it a little, a little while ago, but uh, to coincide with what we read and studied in chapter 36 as to how the Lord would restore his great name by giving them a heart of flesh, and putting his spirit within them, and causing them to walk in his statutes, there's something else that Paul writes. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and by the way, let me remind you that it is the Apostle Paul, who was the, the Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, and this is his description of himself, you know, righteous because he was a, he was a great Jew. Until he came to the Lord Jesus Christ and realized... That everything that he had had done in his life before was, he called it dumb in comparison to knowing Christ. But this one who writes in, in, in Romans chapters 9 through 11 about the salvation of the nation of Israel. Says this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. And you has He quickened, which means you has He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind that were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. If we were to stop there, we'd all be in trouble. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Two of the greatest words in the scriptures are the next two words. But God but God. That erases any opportunity for any of us to say that we had anything to do whatsoever with our salvation, with our coming to a place of eternal life. It wasn't in us because we were dead. And when you're dead, you're just like those dry bones. You can't do anything. Just get drier and deader, if that's a word. But God who is rich in mercy, isn't it wonderful to have a merciful God? But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins has quickened us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved and has raised us up together. By the way, that little phrase, by grace you are saved, you know, it's, it's in parentheses here in, in the text, in most, of, in most translations, it's in parentheses. It's kind of like Paul is writing and getting excited, man. He says, even when we were dead, and he's, he's quickened us together with Christ. And he says, I'm getting ahead of myself, but by grace, are you saved? <laughs> he's excited. And then he kind of calms down and he says, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works. We have to get at this idea out of our heads that God puts us on a scale before him when we go uh, stand before him whenever it happens and and you know he's gonna weigh our good against our bad and if our good outweighs our bad then we get to enter into heaven but if our bad outweighs then we have to go to the other the other direction you know But, but that's that's not the gospel that's not salvation That would negate the cross. Not of words, lest any man should boast. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, not by my works. So now the Lord told Ezekiel the solution to the Jews' hopelessness. Look at verses 4 through 10, back in Ezekiel 37. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O oh, you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord, them bones, them bones, them Dry bones, an old, old Negro spiritual, right? This bone's connected to the other bone, and on and on and on. <laughs> We're not going to sing it tonight, prom- promise. I-, I thought about verse four that uh, here was Ezekiel, and the Lord said to him, "Prophesy now to these dry bones." really <laughs> but you know what Ezekiel man he just did what the Lord said you know sometimes our flesh gets a little bit like oh, are you really if you remember when Peter was, was told by Jesus when they were in the boat uh, after he, he was preaching on the boat on the side there uh, in the Galilee and he told Peter let's go fishing just drop your net over here and he says, man Lord, I'm the fisherman not you but if you say so I'll do it you know Ezekiel says, well, Lord, you know, they're dead bones, but you want me to do it, okay. <laughs> Prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, oh, you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones. Behold, I will cause ruach, breath, to enter into you. And you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you. Tremendous picture here of, of bones all of a sudden being taken and, 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 and the Lord recreating, as it were, life sinews upon you and I'll bring up flesh upon you and cover you with, with skin. And then he says, and put ruach in you. The second time he says it. Put ruach, breath, in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, (laughs) and behold a shaking, (laughs) and the bones came together, bone to his bone, (laughs) all over this (laughs) valley. Looked like a percussion celebration, you know, bones. And then all of a sudden there's quiet because now there's sinew and then there's flesh and there's life. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them and the skin covered them above, but but there was no breath in them. And then, then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, By the way, that's prophesy unto the Ruach, same word for breath and wind, as well as the Spirit of the Lord, Ruach. Prophesy unto the Ruach, prophesy, Son of man, and say to the Ruach, the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, Ruach, O breath, Ruach. (laughs) And breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Remember, only God can do this. And God, who created the heavens and the earth, created. The four winds that come from the south and the north and the east and the west. If we don't breathe the air (laughs) that this particular planet has, we'd be in a lot of trouble. So there is the breath of life physically. But God is talking about the breath of life spiritually. The ruach of the Lord. Back in verse 1, same word, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the ruach, or the spirit of the Lord. God breathed into these dead, lifeless bodies life. What was dead is now alive. He resurrected them and made these bones alive again. You know, physiologically, bones, when they're dried up, whatever kind of bones that they may be, really have all of the true life sucked out of them. There's, there's, there's marrow that is so important in, in the bones structure of, of, of man and beasts. In fact, sometimes we eat marrow, right? If we, you know, get the right cut of meat, you know. And I know what we used to do as kids, you know, they give us a little round circle of bones and we you know, do that kind of thing. There's something about the life, you know, how God designed us. And then you'd have to think that here, as he's putting these bones together, they weren't dead bones anymore. He put life into them again. Because there is, as I said physiologically, some great necessity for us to have our bones also fed and made strong. And so, as the Lord commanded Ezekiel to preach to the dry bones, it it just has to be noted that the bones were being preached to, but they were, in effect, still dead. So he commanded the prophet to prophesy to the Ruach, the Spirit of God, to give life to the dead bodies. And it is important to note that no breath of life enters a person apart from God's Spirit. No breath of life enters a person apart from God's Spirit. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, we see this. Genesis 2 verse 7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. To the book of Revelation at the resurrection of the two witnesses, where it says in Revelation 11 verse 11, And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God. Now the word spirit here is the pneuma. P N E U M A, the Numa entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. From beginning to end, God breathes life. It is His breath, His breath that gave us life spiritually, physically, and His breath that keeps us alive spiritually for an eternity. Because even though these bodies may die, we continue to live. And if we live in Christ, if we die in Christ, we, we continue to live in Christ. And one day we'll have a new body. And in that body, there's no end to the life that God will breathe in us. So. Who would these people be who came to life from the dead bones? Well, we know. If we took a peek, <laughs> we know it's Israel, because that's all we've been talking about is Israel. But just to be clear, verses 11 through 14 says this: Then he said unto man, uh, I'm sorry. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now next week we're going to deal with these two sticks. And, and, and those two sticks represent the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. We'll talk about that next time. So, nonetheless, what he says is these bones are the whole house of Israel, not divided any longer because of their sins and fleshly desires and the desires for some that want to go and worship in a different place or worship other gods or worship. Idols that they as they had done in the past, which got them in trouble to begin with. No, a whole house, one complete unit of people, one house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. And therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves. Now think again, what we said earlier about the six million, well, can they live again? So just kind of think about this, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Bring you into Eretz Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, Ezekiel 36, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, and then shall you know that I the Lord have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord." The Lord continued to encourage his people that he would bring them home from their captivity. Now, on May the 14th, 1948, a miracle in the eyes of the world took place. Israel became a nation once again. But David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, in his proclamation on that day, announced by radio to the whole world what the name of the land would be. He said that the new land, and by the way, the name Palestine would not be in the title or name at all. Palestine was not a name that signified a certain uh, race of people. It was a name that was given uh, as an insult to Israel by a Roman uh, general. So the name Palestine would not be in the title at all. But Ben-Gurion said that the new land would be called what the prophet Ezekiel said it would be called, Eretz Israel the land of Israel. That is still its official name as I said before. Now it is important also to note that Amin Al-Husseini who was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem during World War II and was an ally of Hitler and the Nazis who was also the head of the Arab League he made this declaration in 1948 while all of this was going on he said, and I quote, I declare a holy war, my Muslim brothers. Murder the Jews, murder them all. On May 15, one day after Aretz Israel became a nation, Ben-Gurion expressed Israel's thanks to the USA for their prompt recognition of the state of Israel. And as he spoke, and this was a, a radio program sent to the United States. So as he's speaking and giving thanks to the USA for their recognition of the State of Israel, suddenly and without warning, remember, the day after, suddenly and without warning, a loud explosion interrupted his speech. After a long pause, he said to his American audience, a bomb has just fallen on this city from an enemy aircraft flying overhead. So the Arabs' war to drive the Jews into the sea had begun. The statement that the Arab nations were going to drive Israel into the sea was usually attributed to uh, Nasser, President Nasser of, of Egypt back in the 50s. But uh, the whole idea of getting rid of the Jews was based on... The hatred of all of the nation, the Jewish nation. I'm sorry, the uh, Arab nations all around Israel. So, with no real army or navy, and again, I want you to consider God's hand in all of this. But with no real army or navy, no weapons to speak of. I mean, in many cases, they were using they were using uh, shovels and picks and all kinds of other things, you know, to to stay alive, to keep existing. And I'm speaking of the people of Israel that were there in the land after uh, the nation had been declared as a nation. With no real army, no navy, no weapons, less, actually less than a million people in the land. Well, I I should say they did have one Piper Cub. That that was an airplane, little airplane. They had one Piper Cub plane that was piloted by one man while a second man threw down molotov cocktails down upon a ship that was firing into israel that was that was their air force one plane and for some reason by the way for some reason that ship retreated and so did the army time and again we we hear stories and have read stories because these these are Uh, these were reported and recorded as such. Miracles of God. During the 1956 war, during the 67 uh, six-day war, during the 1973 Yom Kippur War, when in certain places both in 67 and and 73 they only had one tank that was going up and shooting up and shooting up and shooting and he was going against the whole battalion of tanks and, and he was beating them all that could be only the Lord so not by their might not by their strength but by God's Spirit if we looked at it from a human perspective Israel should never be a nation today it should not even have any people living in it It should not have any people at all from a human perspective in every war they've been outnumbered, in every war they've been outmanned, in every war they've been outweaponed as it were, and their God had been outstanding. Their God has been outstanding. And when they should have been wiped out by the 80 million enemies that surround them, they in fact have gained more land after almost every battle. And in many cases they've given some of it back. Unfortunately. It's hurt them because it gives their enemy even more fodder to to fight them. But this passage looks ahead to the future, a future not long from now. And it looks ahead to the kingdom age when the Lord God will pour out his spirit upon them that they might be born again. And again, I urge you to read Romans chapters nine through 11 because it is Paul speaking about the salvation of the nation of Israel. But if you'll go to Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 33, these are just points of reminder for us that God says, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Notice, we, you know, we, we could try to insert and say, well, you know, he's made a new covenant with us. Well, yeah, we have the new covenant. That's the New, the new Testament. That's the covenant that he made with us. But it, it goes, really does go all the way back to Abraham. Because Abraham is the father of faith, both of the Gentiles and the Jews. So understand what what is being said here. It is very clear that he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, which means one nation once again. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Now remember that we saw in in chapter 36 of Ezekiel that the Lord was going to give them hearts of flesh. Why? He was taking out stony hearts. Is there any life in a stone? No, not at all. But he was going to give them a heart of flesh that would be alive And he could write his law on their hearts. Totally different. Think about the law that the hand of God wrote on the stone on Mount Sinai. Written by the finger of God. But why was it written that way? Because it was to say the law is hard. The law cannot be kept by you. But this is my law. And the people said, and when Moses brought the law to them, Yay, we got the law, we can do it. There were only ten commandments. Hey, we can do ten, folks. They couldn't even do one in the garden. Adam and Eve only had one law, and they couldn't keep it. Don't eat of the tree of the fruit. Of, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they couldn't keep that. So understand what he's saying is: here's the covenant. I want to put my law in your hearts. I want to write it there. But I want to write it on something that's alive, something that you can keep, but you only keep because I give you life. I'm the giver and the keeper of life for you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. So he says, I will be their God, they shall be my people. If you go to Jeremiah 33 verses 14 through 16, it says, Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up into David or to grow up unto David. Folks, the branch of righteousness is Yeshua, Jesus. The branch of righteousness is the one who is going to set up his kingdom on the throne of David. That is why it says, to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. And we know that for a thousand years, Jesus will rule and reign from the city of Jerusalem on the throne of David. In those days shall Judah be saved, notice, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. We have yet to see the whole of the nation of Israel truly come to know their God. Much of the nation today, as I've mentioned before, is either agnostic or atheistic. Agnostic in the sense that they're not sure if you can know God or not. Atheistic in that some don't even believe that there is a God. But one day they will recognize their Messiah one day they will see him. They'll see him for who he is. Because in one of the great prophetic passages in Scripture, Zechariah 12, God says this this in verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications and they shall look upon Me whom they have pierced." They shall look upon Me. So who's speaking here? Jesus. They shall look upon Me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son. These are words in the, in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it could only take our minds and our hearts to the very statement that we, that we all should know so well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him, Jew or Gentile, should not perish but have everlasting life. They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. But we know one thing. God is not bitter. God is sovereign. And he's in complete control. And he sent his son. And his son came. And we're told in Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Israel will be saved, and as a nation, they will see who it is that really is their King. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Most Holy One, their Redeemer, their Savior, their Lord, their Master. And he has a name. And his name is Yeshua, Jesus. God is salvation. Not man, God. God is salvation, and Yeshua is the Mashiach, the Holy One, the Anointed One, the Christ. Now next time we're going to look at the last section of chapter 37 that deals with two sticks that represent Judah and Israel, the nation of Israel, or the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah and the bringing them together. And this is very important for us to to take uh, alone as as we did this passage here tonight so I encourage you to keep reading on and then we'll study on this uh, passage next time let's pray our father we thank you so much for your faithfulness to your people israel your faithfulness to the church the true church of jesus christ Those who love you, those who trust you, and those who believe and stand upon your word. Those who exhibit the love of Jesus Christ in their daily life and in their daily walk. Those who desire each and every day to be more and more like him. Those who continue to look up in great anticipation for the coming of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our blessed hope, and to have in our hearts that hope of his appearing at any time, in any moment. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have encouraged our hearts to keep looking up and to lift up our heads because our redemption truly does draw near. And we want to be ready for that day. So we thank you for your word and we thank you for taking us through it, for granting us, Lord, the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to understand it and to know it, but also for your Spirit to keep giving us life, life that will know no end. And even though these bodies may either die or be raptured, we know one thing that you have a new body for us that will live forever. And for this again, Lord, we are thankful to look forward to, because you've made great and precious promises. And these are the promises, Lord God, that we know you'll keep, because you're a faithful God. Now, I pray, Father, that as we leave here today, you would encourage our hearts. You would strengthen us, Lord, in our walk, that you would grant us, Lord God, your continued wisdom and grace. That you would, Lord, help us when we fall. Strengthen us, O oh God, when you pick, pick us up. Encourage us, Lord God, to stay faithful when I know, Lord, we fight those battles each and every day. Bless us, O oh Lord, with the strength that comes through your Spirit and through your Word through your life. We bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand?